This is the Jewish Kaleidoscope with Dr. Gail Golden. How do you make sense of your life? How do you prioritize what is truly important? What if you saw your life as an art museum that you were curating? In a fascinating discussion, Dr. Gail Golden speaks about the approach behind her book, Curating Your Life. I'm Rabbi Michael Siegel, and the Jewish Kaleidoscope is an opportunity to speak with members of our community about interesting things that they're doing and learn more about their work and about them. Today, it's our pleasure to welcome Gail Golden. Gail is the principal of Gail Golden Consulting. And as a psychologist and a consultant for over 25 years, Gail has developed deep expertise in helping businesses to build better leaders. Before founding Gail Golden Consulting, Gail was a consultant and international management psychology consulting firm. Previously, she was chief psychologist of Golden Psychological Services in London, Ontario. Gail received her bachelor's degree in psychology from the University of Chicago, her PhD in clinical psychology from Indiana University, and her MBA from the University of Western Ontario. Gail is also an author, and her latest book, Curating Your Life, is a fascinating read, which is the culmination of her work, her experience, and her wisdom. And so, first of all, welcome, Gail. Thanks for making the time. Thank you. I'm really delighted to be here. So, if I were to say that your book is about time management, how would you respond? I would say, wrong. <laughs> um, it is about the topic that many of us label as time management, meaning I've got a great many things that I want to do or I'm supposed to do in my life. Now, how on earth do I get them all done? But here's the problem with calling it time management. You can't manage time. You have 24 hours a day. It keeps coming. There's nothing you can do about that. You can't make it longer or shorter or faster or slower. Time just keeps pouring on. But you can't prioritize. You can kind of say one, two, three, four, and all those kinds of time management cues that we learned over the years. Yes, but I don't call it time management. I call it energy management. Mm -hmm. Because it seems to me that if you ask me to do something and I think, mm, do I have time to do that? It's likely going to lead me to trying to somehow squeeze it in. As opposed to a saying, do I want to use my energy for that? Which then makes me think about, well, okay, I've got a finite amount of energy. Is this the important thing that I need and want to be doing at this moment or sometime in the next few days or ever? Um, and so I find using energy language as opposed to time language leads us to much better solutions. So in a way, how do I conserve my energy? How do I think about what I have to expend in the course of a day, and how do I want to make use of it? Exactly. And there are really two pieces to it, because part of it is, how do I maximize the amount of energy that I have? How do I build up my energy by eating well, by getting sleep, by spending time around people who energize me? But even if you do all of those things right, you still have a finite amount of energy from which to work. And then the other side of it is saying, okay... I've got this amount of energy. What am I going to do with it? What are the most important things, both big picture in my life? What do I want my life to be about? And small picture, today, this morning, what do I need to get done before noon? And getting clear about that. You know, as you were talking, I began to think about how we are in the most time-managed period in human history. We have all kinds of minders, calendars on our phones and 
with alarms that will tell us where we need to be and how we need to do it. And because we are also uh, in constant communication or the world can be in constant communication with us, we are actually being more managed by time than we're managing time. And I was wondering, the current craze to stream television shows where people will sit in front of a television screen, I'm guilty as charged here. I, I certainly have done this along with my wife. But what does it tell us that we will now watch hours and hours and hours of television? Is this an escape from time? Is it a response to time? How do we, and the fact that we're willing to direct our energy towards that, what does that say? You know, I think it can be a number of different things. I mean, I know people who are depressed and sit in front of a television for 12 hours, just kind of mindlessly letting the hours drift by. And that's very sad. On the other hand, if you lead a, a, an intense and busy life and you make a conscious choice and say, you know what? On Sunday morning, I'm going to watch three back-to-back -back episodes of The Crown or Mrs. Maisel or whatever your poison of choice is. I think that can be a joyful and positive thing, especially if you're doing it with somebody you care about, even better. So I don't think there's anything per se that's bad or wrong about streaming television. So it's really television. just a giving ourselves a chance to recharge our batteries. Absolutely. And Everything about making conscious choices. Conscious choices. So tell me how you, how you even came to this idea about energy conservation and really focusing more on energy than the clock? For the first half of my career, I was a clinical psychologist doing psychotherapy with people, uh, working with people having all kinds of very intense problems. Not working with corporations, but having... Individuals. individuals yeah, usually clients. referred by their family doctor or, you know, another professional. Mid-career, I decided it was time for me to recharge my batteries by thinking about other kinds of problems. That's when I went back to school, got the MBA, and started working with business leaders. The two groups of clients are very different. The mental health clients are very different from the business executives that I work with now in many ways. But there was one consistent thing right across, which was almost everybody was struggling with unreasonable expectations, trying to do too much, feeling exhausted and inadequate all the time. And by the way, people tend to think about this as a women's problem. It's not. The men I talk to are struggling in many of the very same ways. So I thought, now this is interesting. This is a problem that's really... And meanwhile, we've had, we have these, all these notions of work-life balance and all of these things that are supposed to enable you to deal with that, and they're not working. A lot of people are really miserable because they're exhausted, overwhelmed, and feeling inadequate. And I thought there's got to be a better way to think about this and to manage it. I also came across a wonderful book called The Power of Full Engagement by two authors, Lower and Schwartz. And I recommend that book to practically every one of my clients. And it is about energy management. It is from them that I got this notion that energy management makes more sense than time management. They're all about how to increase your energy capacity. And the piece it seemed to me that I could bring is what to do with that capacity, how to make the best choices about how you're going to expend your energy for you at this time in your context. So give me a strategy that you would recommend to a business executive about how to think about their energy and how to maximize their effectiveness. Well, I'm going to start with the framework because it's the same for business executives as it is for people in other kinds of life roles. I started to think about this concept of curation, of what 
an a museum curator does or somebody who's putting together a library or a concert, where you're going to select what goes into the exhibit or the concert and what doesn't get in. And how does a curator think about that problem? And it seemed to me the first thing you've got to figure out is, what's the exhibit about? If I ask you to make an exhibit and I don't tell you what it's about, it's going to be pretty hard for you to do a good job. So you've got to figure out what it's about. And then you look at all the beautiful things the museum has, and you say, those are lovely things, but they don't. most of them don't belong in my exhibit. They're valuable, they're important, but they don't go in my, this exhibit right now. It's an interesting, uh, it's interesting idea. We would normally think that the exhibit is Gail Golden or Michael Siegel. This is my exhibit. This is what I do. Mm -hmm. And we rarely think about whether the pieces fit together. Mm -hmm. But rather than... But, or what, what we want the pieces to reflect. Yes. And how do I align them? That's a very interesting idea. Well, that's where I think this sense then of meaning and purpose comes from, is taking the time to think, what's my exhibit about? I, you know, for me right now in my life, my exhibit primarily is about my work as a management psychologist and serving the clients with whom I work. This book which I have written, and I want to get the ideas out there because I think they can help people and because I'm having a lot of fun doing it. And my family, my marriage, my sons, and these days, especially my grandchildren, with whom I get to spend lots of wonderful time. Those are my three things that my exhibit is about right now. Ten years ago, that wasn't the case. I didn't, I hadn't written a book, and I didn't have grandchildren yet. So it changes. But I think being very clear, and then as I make choices about how I spend my energy, it's about, well, is it about my work? Is it about my family? Is it about my book? If not, all right, maybe, but it probably isn't going to get onto the top of the list. And so it won't be part of your exhibit, part of that curation. Well, there are the things that don't go into your exhibit. Here's the really tricky part for most people is that there are things that go into the exhibit, but to use the museum analogy, they go in a side room. They're off to the side somewhere. They're not the main thing in your exhibit. In the basement somewhere. Well, the basement is the storeroom, but the, the side, you know how when you go into a museum exhibit, there's the big hall where there's, you know, Sunday afternoon on the island of La Grande Jatte or some other enormous painting that's the, the main focus. And then there are the little side rooms. If you're really interested, you go in there and see less important pieces. In my life curation framework, those are the things that I'm going to do in my life, but I'm only going to do them so they're just good enough. They don't have to be perfect. They don't have to be excellent. They just have to be good enough. That's an important piece of this, and it's really, really hard for most people. So give me an example of something that you do in your life that's just good enough. Yeah. Um, well, of course, there are lots of things in my personal life, like if you open my kitchen drawers and you find a jumbled mess. You know, it's good enough that I can find what I need, but it surely isn't something that you'd want to have in an interior decorating magazine. So you can't put your energy into everything. That's right. Even in my, even in my professional life. For example, I mean, I'm not proud of this, but I'm not up to date on every journal that I should be reading. I would like to be. There's all kinds of good ideas in there. I do my best. I skim them occasionally. I sometimes find an article that I dig down into. But there's a lot of stuff flowing by me that I don't have time. No, I don't have the energy to read. I don't choose to put my energy into that because there are other things that are more important. Is there a, is a, is there a place for the spirit in all of this? You talked about 
family life, work life, grandchildren? How does how does one think about their spiritual life? Is that part of the energy? Is that, how how do you look at that? That's a that's an interesting question. In Lower and Schwartz's book, they talk about four kinds of energy: physical, emotional, mental, cognitive energy, and spiritual energy. And they say you have to be aware of and managing all four kinds. So I would say that in my model, spiritual is both a source of energy, but also can be a demand on my energy. And I, and I have to mean, do I go to Minyan every morning of the week? I did when I was saying Kaddish for my mother. I don't now. I would love to. I would love to go to Minyan every morning. I like going to Minyan. But in terms of my curation, I haven't chosen to put my energy there at this particular time. Well, as a rabbi, I think it's an excellent choice of where to put your energy. <laughs> but, uh, so is there anything Jewish about this? Is this a purely secular understanding of energy? Or I know you're a committed Jew. You think about Jewish and you're, you're active in the community. So is, this, is there a Jewish component to any of this? That's a great question. I worked very hard to make this a book for everybody not just a women's book, not just a young people or an old people's book, not just a business executive's book, although there's plenty in there for business leaders, and, and not just a Jewish book. Having said that, many of the examples that I use in the book, I mean, one of the stories that I tell is of a young rabbi trying to make a decision about whether he wanted to go after a big prestigious pulpit or whether he wanted to work with some, you know, um, grounds-up community organizing of Jews in a, you know, the inner city, something like that. So those kinds of examples are in there. Uh, there's a place in the book where I talk about what I call the most difficult handoff of leadership from one leader to the next, which is from Moses to Joshua, and how that was handled and what the Bible tells us about how it was handled. So the examples are Jewish and not all of them. How does, the, how does Moses and Joshua fit into this framework? Because part of the book is about what I call recurating, which is recognizing when it's time to rearrange your exhibit. You, so, re so retirement. Retirement is a big one. Uh, entering the workforce is a big one. The birth of your first child is an enormous one. There are many of these moments. Or, like as for me, when I had been a clinical psychologist for over 20 years and I began to realize that I was getting stale. And I wasn't bringing my full energy to my work any longer. And I thought, wait, my clients deserve better than that. And I deserve better than that. It's time to do something else. And that was a big recuration for me, although I didn't call it that then. So yes, retirement. And here's Moses, whose entire self and spiritual life and identity is bound up in being the incredible leader who brings the people out of slavery into freedom. And God says, you're going to have to step down. You don't get to take the people into the land. Although it's interesting, Moses doesn't actually retire, does he? He dies. He dies, yes. And that's also kind of an interesting piece. Jacob, by the way, um, it's uh, in the beginning of the portion of Vayeshev. It says Vayeshev Yaakov, and Jacob settled down. And this is right after he has that final meeting with his brother Esau, where his life was in danger, where he wrestled an angel, where he took on a new name, that he survived his brother, that they made some sort of peace together. And now it would appear that, you know, this is Moses's or Jacob's opportunity to kind of move to Florida and put his feet up. 
And the very next thing that happens is that Joseph's name is mentioned. And that's important from the rabbinic point of view, and Rashi points this out, that you don't get to retire. Retirement isn't really a Jewish concept in the way that we think about it today. And obviously, economics, life expectancy, all that stuff went into that. But Shabbat plays a role in sort of that energy that we're talking about, that you stop and then you give yourself time to curate your life as you would like it to be. You have a nice meal. You have time for community. You sleep, maybe take a Shabbos nap, and then the sundown comes and back to, back you know, to work. Back to work. Mm-hmm. That's a different kind of balance, isn't it? Yes. Yes. I talk a lot about Shabbat, in, some in the book, and, and a lot with my clients, most of whom are not Jewish, and the ones who are Jewish are mostly not observant. And it's not as if I say to them, look, you have to rest from Friday, sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. But I talk about Shabbat. In fact, I talk about it and I say, look, it says in the Bible, God worked for six days and on the seventh day, God rested. And I say, did God need to rest? I mean, God is God. Why would God rest? And it seems to me, God giving us permission and a, and a model for what that looks like, that we are supposed to rest. And I said, so if you're an observant Jew, that's great. This comes from God and we're obligated to do it. But if, the, if it's for the rest of us, it's about how do we find those spaces. It's interesting that the word that's used for rest is menucha in the Bible. It's an unusual word. It's a spiritual rest. And in a way, what we've been watching God do is to act, create the world for six days. But even God needs to recycle. Even God needs to focus on the other parts, the other aspects of the Godhead. And so it is an example to us. It's not rest, but it is a place of spiritual being. And in a way, maybe we could say that once a week, we get to curate our lives as we want them to be. And during the course of the week, we have the opportunity to come closer to how we really want our ideal life to look. I, I think that's a beautiful way to, to phrase it. Um, you know, one of the things I did as I, as I prepared the book was I thought, what does the perfect day look like to, for me? If I could have a day that was just right. And I, and I listed about 12 or 15 things that would happen in that day. Everything from I get to eat good food that's healthy to I wake up in the morning refreshed uh, to I spend time with people whom I love. And I put that in the book. And I said, look, that's my perfect day. It may not be yours. Figure out what yours is and then curate your life so that you can have as Nobody's going to have that every day. But aim for that. Make that your day as often as possible. That's my wish for you. And I think it, that's part of curation is figuring out what would that day look like? What would happen in that day? And how can I make that happen? What I like so much about what you're uh, proposing is a much more thoughtful way of fulfilling your life and your life's goals as opposed to a to-do list where you are saying, well, this is a priority, and what makes it a priority? Well, it'll affect my job if I don't do it. It will have a negative effect on the people in my life, my family, if I choose to do it or don't do it, right? So all of that is how we kind of, in a very sort of cold and calculating way, make a checklist. You are offering us, and I think it's a very important idea, more than just a reframing 
around energy, but you're also helping us do the portrait too, filling in the painting of what, what do I want my life to look like and how will they balance each other and how do I go from each color to what, this and that and how big do I want this piece to be? If I spend all of my time creating this and that's my work piece and then my family piece is you know, kind of a miniature, that's a problem. And so in a way, that's a reminder that we have to kind of close our eyes and say, well, if I took yesterday and looked at it as a curation, what would it look like? And, and you're the docent yes. of your own life. Yes. And so you're kind of walking I around. I like that. I might steal that from you. <laughs> it's yours. Um, but you're walking around and you're looking at it and you're facing it. And then come Shabbat, you have a time to sort of just let go. I think that's one of the wonderful features of Shabbat. It's a day of spirit. And it's interesting that, that Heschel, you know, focuses on the whole palace and time. Yes. In a way that we kind of go somewhere else and we have these rooms that we get to go and we have the meal. And what is it like to sit at the table without electronics? It's like just to talk and just to sing or to be with other people in a communal setting. And just have a lunch with them, mm-hmm. you know, even if it's tuna fish. It's just, <laughs> you know, it's, it's the experience. And in a way, Shabbat is energizing. I have been keeping Shabbat in one way or another since I was in graduate school. And I work like a fiend. I'm a very, very intense and hard worker. And Shabbat has been my lifeline for most, in my entire adult life. And I'm not, I'm not Shomer Shabbos, but there are a lot of things I don't do on Shabbat. But you're committed to Shabbat. I am. There are two points I want to make about curation that I think are important. The first one is it sounds simple, and it isn't. I mean, if it were simple, we'd all be doing it. We're not stupid people. So recognizing that this is, I think the book offers some tools and some ways to think about this, but this is hard, ongoing work to live a curated life. That's number one. And the other one is I do want to emphasize that while it's very important to think about what I want and what is important to me and what my portrait what I look like. It's very much about doing that in the context of other people who matter to me. I do have to think about what my boss wants or my shareholders or my spouse or my kids or all these other people because we are social animals and relationships are crucially important for almost all of us. So as I looked at other books on this topic, I often saw what seemed to me a very self-centered, oh, you know, you figure out what you want and you go for it and the heck with the rest of them. That's not how I think about curation at all. It is very much about part of this portrait of me and of my exhibit is about my relationships with other people. And so I have to pay attention to what works for them and how does my exhibit intersect with theirs. And I I want to stress that because I don't want this to come across as, oh, you know, figure out what matters to Gail and go off and do it and don't have to think about anybody else. It's not that. No, but I think what's instructive, and as you were talking, I was thinking, well, yes, our work does make all kinds of demands on us. Mm-hmm. But if I only have a finite amount of energy, right? then the question is, where am I going to put that energy to the best its best effect? Absolutely. In my work and all of my other endeavors in my life. So you've given us a lot to think about. And I love the fact that you've put it into a Jewish context. Gail, I I wish you well with your uh, new book. Thank you. Curating your life. Right. And to continuing the conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you.